0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good to be with you all. Happy Father's Day. Thanks for coming. Let's pray. Ask God for help as we look at his word together. Heavenly Father, you are holy and awesome, and we don't deserve to come before you. Uh, But we thank you that you communicate to us, and you invite us near through Jesus. Uh, Lord God, we pray your Holy Spirit would fill us right now, awaken our minds, our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to want to hear from you, to want to hear what you're saying. And we pray that uh, your words would not only come through our minds accurately and clearly, but also that it would hit right into our hearts and conform us, change us, move us towards you to be like you in the way that you call for from us. Lord, we can't do this by ourselves. We thank you for your grace that's in Christ and your encouraging power to help us in the Holy Spirit. So help us now, Lord, help me to teach this faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm sure you all know that Christianity has many critics. Have you heard that one before? Yeah? Yeah. One accusation we sometimes hear from critics about Christianity is how Christianity causes self-righteousness, and therefore it's harmful to the world. Have you heard that one? If Christianity is exclusive and only special people believe it, then they're better than everybody else, and that gives them an attitude to treat other people poorly. That's a criticism about Christianity. Self-righteousness influences these abusive relationships, and so critics say Christianity is bad for the world. So what do you think about that? Let's go ahead and admit the point, at least, you ever met a self-righteous Christian who was mean to you? (laughs) You're like, some of them are sitting here right now. Um, Yeah, I've had that happen to me very painfully, and not only that, let's be a little more honest. Have you ever been a little self-righteous and a little uh, abusive towards others? You should all be going, oh yeah, right? Yes, yes you have. So okay, we'll, we'll uh, admit the point that Christians act like that sometimes, but many times this criticism isn't just talking about the way some Christians act sometimes. The criticism is that Christianity itself, the doctrinal beliefs of Christianity, cause self-righteousness and therefore are harmful and bad for the world. So they're not, so they're not just talking about what Christians do, they're talking about what Christianity is. Here's one example from Psychology Today article in uh, 2014. The article is actually entitled, Does Christianity Harm Children? And the doctor's answer throughout his article is basically, yes. And here's one example. He says, Christianity teaches children that those who accept Jesus as their personal Savior are good, saved, going to heaven. And those who do not j- accept Jesus as their personal Savior are sinful, sinful and destined for hell. Then he says, so interesting, this can cause children to feel smug, superior, self-righteous, judgmental, and to look down upon and condemn others, be they kids on the schoolyard, neighbors, or even relatives. So there you have it, right? Kind of a, a, a pop culture, but intellectual, philosophical, psychological criticism of Christianity, saying that the very doctrines of the faith Incite self-righteousness in children, which causes harmful relationships. It's quite the accusation. How would you respond to that, I wonder? What would you say? What would you say back? So we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. This morning we're in chapter 18. A little background, the last time we were in Luke, Jesus was teaching us about the nature of his kingdom. He's talking about how it's here, how it's also coming, what it means to respond to his kingdom. So if you want to look on the website and catch up, that's from two weeks ago. So if Jesus just previously was talking about the nature of his kingdom, today he's talking about who it is that receives his kingdom. What kind of person will enjoy his kingdom? Look at verse 17. Jesus says there, Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So isn't Jesus talking about the kind of person that receives and enters and enjoys his kingdom? But there's also a second aspect to what Jesus is saying today. He's talking about the nature of your trust, what you trust in that makes you fit for his kingdom, but he's also talking about how the nature of that trust affects how you treat others. Look at verse 9, the first verse of our passage. He told this parable to some who, what, trusted in, did you see it, themselves, that they were righteous, and therefore, how did they treat others? With contempt. Pretty interesting, huh? I think it's, isn't Jesus directly dealing with the nature of the criticism from our, uh, from our doctor? Who does receive the kingdom? And how does the kingdom work? And, and, and is it about self-righteousness? And how does how you view yourself connect with how you treat others? So I have four points for us to consider this morning as we work through maybe how Jesus would respond to a criticism like this. Number one, we want to consider the problem Jesus is addressing. There's this massive problem everybody seems to struggle with. Consider the problem. Number two, let's consider the parable Jesus tells us. Exposes our hearts. Number three, we're gonna consider the practical example of the disciples. Did they get what Jesus was saying or not? Why not? How does it work? And finally, we'll consider what it means for us personally. So consider the problem, consider the parable, consider the practical example, consider what it means for you personally. First of all, the problem. Verse nine, Luke 18, verse nine. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treats others with contempt first of all i want you to see the audience is broadened if as you've been going through luke hasn't jesus been working from disciples to pharisees disciples to pharisees now we get this just he told this parable to anyone who trusted in themselves that they are righteous he broadens the audience anybody if you think like this i'm talking to you so he broadens the audience and not only is he thinking about what you trust in to make you righteous, he wants you to think about how you trust in what makes you righteous affects how you view and treat others. Do you see the connection? Jesus sees a huge connection between how you view yourself before God and how you treat other people. First of all, what is righteousness? We use that word a lot. What is that word? Uh, How would you define it if you had to? Somebody on the street, Christians talk about righteousness. What do you mean? Well, couldn't you say at least broadly speaking, righteousness is just the idea of being good or being right according to some standard? You're good or right according to some standard. You did the right thing. Um, The idea of righteousness does assume that there is a standard, though, isn't there? Doesn't it? To be good? Okay. How do you know what good is? There's got to be a standard, and it has to apply to just more than one person, (laughs) right? It's got to be a standard. We kind of look to and say, yeah, that's right, and if you meet it somehow, you're good. Righteousness is about being good according to some standard. You know, I think everybody cares about righteousness. I don't care what religion you're in or whether you don't have a religion at all, or even if you're an atheist, I think everybody cares about righteousness. You know how we know this? It's kind of the old joke, right? Somebody says, oh, there's no standard for good and evil. Steal their wallet. Just steal their wallet. All of a sudden, they're going to be as uh, ethically you know, and morally precise as you could ever imagine. Hey, that's wrong. Uh, you especially know that people care about righteousness when they're mistreated. So have you ever listened in on somebody else's argument? Two people arguing? It's fascinating to me. Every argument we ever have seems to somehow say, you're wrong and you should know it. Think, think, think about what's assumed there. You're wrong, and you should know it. What's being assumed? You and I have a shared standard of righteousness, and you should know that you're breaking it. And I'm here to tell you, you are, in fact, breaking that standard we both share. It's fascinating. And, you know, here's an argument you'll never hear. I've never heard this argument. Hey, I felt like you were a jerk. But that's just my meaningless feelings based on a standard that doesn't actually exist. You felt you did what felt good to you and true for you and that's all there is. So go on go on and keep doing that. I have nothing more to say because that's right for me to do even though there's no I'm lost. Do you see have you ever heard an argument like that? No, because everybody no matter what they say deeply believes in righteousness somehow, somehow. So this reminds us of where we're at as Christians. As Christians, how do we know righteousness? How do you know what's right all the time? Is it your feelings? Gosh, I hope not. It's higher than that, right? Well, ultimately we know God is the standard of righteousness. He himself is righteous. He and what he loves is righteous. And he has explained that for us and applied that to us in his word. There in his word we have the ultimate standard for everyone about what righteousness is. So who's the authority for how you know whether or not you're right or righteous or good enough or you've met the standard? Well, he is. That's why it lands kind of... Heavy when Jesus says many, 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 many trust in, what do we tend to do as human beings? Where do we tend to look to believe that we're righteous, good enough, met the standard? What do we trust in according to Jesus in verse 9? We trust in ourselves. In my experience, this is the most popular view in the world. And in the Bible, this is the most popular view in the world. And I think, I'm not a perfect expert, but I think as you look at the religions of the world, this is the most popular view in the world how do you know you're right with God you will hear it so many times even from church-going Christians you'll hear this I'm a good person you'll hear it I'm a good person or you'll hear well I go to church or you're here as long as it's if that first word is I I you're wondering people trust in themselves that they're good Now, the standard could change, right? For some, it's I'm a good person because I've kept the religious duties. For others, it could be I'm a good person because I've got my theology in a row. Or for others, it could be, hey, I'm a good person because I've worked hard, I have a work ethic, and I've made it. That's their standard. Or somebody else, it could be I have a small carbon footprint. (laughs) Somebody else, it could be I'm better than my neighbor down the street. But in each case, the person is looking to what they've accomplished and then saying, I've met the standard. And it's so fascinating that Jesus sees a pattern that whenever people trust in themselves for righteousness, they tend to treat others with contempt. Do you see that pattern? Do you think that's true? Think about it with me. Why, is, why does it work this way? Well, if I've kept the standard on my own effort, if I've made it, I've done it, I deserve the recognition, I earn it. I earn it, I deserve something now. And if you haven't met that same standard, you failed, you turned, you messed it up, you blew it, then you haven't earned it. And if I've earned it and you haven't earned it, then in this context, in this way, I'm better than you are. And it's tricky because there are parts of life that are like that. I'm a Red Sox fan, please forgive me, okay? And uh, if you like baseball, do some people make the team and some people get released? Yeah, why? Because one one is better than the other. And there's no other way to do this. In that setting, that's appropriate. One person did earn the position more than another person. But we apply that to a relationship with God or to a sense of being good. I've kept the standard, and we know, we kind of are haunted with, I haven't kept every standard out there, so we choose to value certain kinds of standards that we keep. I'm young and beautiful, and you're not, not me, obviously. Don't you know people who find themselves to be good because they're successful in their career? Or people who, identify I'm good, I've made it because of how their kids are doing? I mean, there's a million flavors of this same attitude of the heart, that there's some sort of standard, and I've made it, I've earned it, I've done it, and other people who haven't, I look at them with disdain, because they haven't made it. The political environment of our country, what's your different standard of righteousness? Well, it's this issue, it's that issue, and if somebody else disagrees with you, how do we tend to look at them? Contempt, disdain. Religion to religion, Christian tribe to Christian tribe. It's incredible, all the varieties. Here's, here's a broader example. Southern United States of the 1700s to 1800s. What's the law for righteousness on being totally human? A white landowner. And if you don't meet that law for what it means to be human, if you have a different color skin, then you're, you haven't made the cut. And therefore, I can, what can I do with you now? I can enslave you, which is the ultimate, treat you with contempt. Right? This happens all over the world, all the time, in our hearts. This is the problem Jesus wants to draw out. Is if you trust in yourself that you're righteous, you'll treat others with contempt. So Jesus now has a parable for the whole world, for us, for his audience, for everyone who thinks this way. And it begins, verse 10. Two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the first part of this interaction is just everyday life in Israel. You'd go to the temple to pray. And in context, there's sacrifices happening around that prayer. There's incense being burned. And so the idea is, as these things are happening, I can come into God's presence and relate to him and pray to him. Two people come in to pray. But then Jesus, look at the character Jesus chooses in his, in his parable. Who's, who's character number one? The Pharisee, who's character number two? The tax collector. Now, this is a parable. This is not a real story. Pharisee named Steve, tax collector named Clarence, and they came in and I saw it, Jesus says, no, this is a parable. So that means he's choosing his job positions symbolically. There's, it's laden with meaning. So what does the Pharisee mean to Jesus' audience? Well, the Pharisee is the ultimate cultural example of someone who's righteous, He is. Now we're used to it, right? You would watch a Jesus movie, the Pharisee comes in, you hear bad, scary music. And you've read the Bible enough to know, I don't trust those guys. But if you lived back in the day, you wouldn't necessarily see it that way. They were the example of being righteous. Oh, I could never be like that guy. He's the cultural example. And then number two, who's the second guy? The tax collector. Again, this is culturally-laden. How does everybody in the community look at that guy? Let's remember, the tax collector has betrayed his ethnicity, he has betrayed his nation, he has betrayed his religion, he has betrayed his morality, all for power and pleasure and money. It's kind of hard to imagine what he's done. He's betrayed it all so that he can now abuse, generally speaking, uh, the, the, the neighborhood in which he grew up to overtax you so he can live on the wealth of that money. And he's doing it for the pagan Roman empire that wants to dominate you. And it's almost like a, a mafia kind of enterprise. Around the tax collectors, there's prostitution. There's all these, this other lavish kind of big bad sin. They're called sinners. So... The resume on this person is total unrighteousness. So for his story, for his example, he's chosen the ultimate cultural example of someone who is righteous, the Pharisee who wants to make the nation right through religious purity and law-keeping, and he's very serious about his religious goodness, and then the other person is the tax collector. He is a moral dumpster fire. He is a betrayer. Everyone in this community, when they think of their own righteousness, would go, Well, at least I'm not a tax collector. At least I'm not a tax collector. And that's the one Jesus chose. It's very intentional. Look at the way they pray in Jesus' parable. Verse 11, the, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you, I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. First of all, you see his posture in prayer. Commentators say it's self-assured. He's standing closer to the holy of holies. He's standing away from people who don't follow the Lord seriously. He does not want to be included in that number. He stands by himself. And now look at the way he prays. He does thank God, but it is not like a psalm of thanksgiving. Because what deeds of God does he thank God for? None. He moves very quickly from God's deeds to whose. His own five times in two verses the dude moves pretty fast I I I I I I look what I've done look what I do and look what I haven't done now now be careful the things that he does are they good things can they be good things for sure the things that he has not done is that not a good thing to not do those things? Like, we're in support, right, of not being an extortioner or an adulterer. Are we in support? Yeah, all in favor? Yeah, okay, good, that's good. That's good that you have done these things and have not done those things, but it's interesting, I, I thank you that I, I, I can, I haven't, I. Now, look at the way he views others in this little mini prayer. Do you see any, do you see any uh, pleading for others? Do you see any hoping for others? There's one major angle his heart has towards others. And what is it? I am not like them. And what is that, folks? That's a law of comparison. It's a law of comparison. He has just hinted at you about what his standard is. And part of it is, I've kept the standard of not being like them. And I think we do this. You ever feel better about yourself because you're not like that person? You would never done what, do what that person has done. You know you have some weaknesses here and there, but not there. And those people, you would never, but they do. And so his final attitude towards others, I thank you especially, because in this parable, there's two people praying Within eyesight of one another. And one is praying, and what does he actually think of when he sees the tax collector? I thank you that I'm not like him. And he moves a little bit away. Where, you see his motivation in his prayer, where does he find his sense of righteousness in himself? And how does he treat others with contempt? Look at the tax collector's prayer. He has a posture as well, but it's, it's standing at a distance. It's standing kind of far away from God's people. It's standing towards the back. I mean, that's why we love to sit in the back here at Final Life, right? Everybody's fighting for that seat. He, he loves to sit in the back. He's far from the Holy of Holies, standing far off. It's self-abasing. It's, it's, a, it's a humble posture. Moreover, look at the way he prays. He won't even lift his eyes up. But beat his breast, and scholars say that when, when ancient Near Eastern men do this, it's just this very emotive, very passionate sense of grieving and mourning. He's beating his breast, and what does he say? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know it's amazing? Who else is in this prayer? You got two people in this guy's prayer. Who are they? God and himself. Can he at least blame his dad for what he's like? It's Father's Day, right? Can he at least say, if I wasn't so poor, I wouldn't have had to be a tax collector? Can he at least bring in some excuse for why at least a little bit of it wasn't his fault? Where do you see any of that? It's not there. There's two people in his prayer. It's God and it's him. And what does he say about Himself. I'm sinner. It's confession. It's confession. Is there any shred of him trusting in his own righteousness? No, because he knows something about himself. What does he know about himself? He doesn't have any righteousness. He can't trust in it. It's zero. The bank is empty. What is his trust? He's got one trust. Have what? mercy on me mercy and this is a special word for the idea of mercy and actually if you you know if you get all geeky on this it means propitiate for me have you heard that one propitiation you, you know that word it's this idea of a substitutionary atoning help you have to do something to cover my problem you have to meet my problem. And he's probably praying, Lord, let these things happening in the temple, the sacrifices and the incense, let them work for me. I need your mercy. Receive me. That's all I have. So Jesus has told this parable. Pharisee, righteous. Tax collector, unrighteous. Pharisee, where does he look for his righteousness? Himself. How does he treat others? Contempt. Tax collector, dumpster fire, evil, wicked man. Where does he look for his righteousness? Righteousness. God's mercy. I really think Jesus' line here in verse 14 would have brought an audible groan from his audience. It w- th- he would have had to repeat it. What? Because look what he says in 14. I tell you, this man. Now, which one? The tax collector went down to his house justified. And that word before Paul and his epistles meant pretty much the same thing declared to be right with God. Now, you should all be shocked and appalled because isn't God just? Is, Is God just? Is he holy? Is he just? Does he hate sin? Does he bring judgment and wrath on sin? What has this tax collector been doing for years and years, repeatedly, over and over again, with full knowledge of what he is doing? What has he been doing? He's been sinning. How dare God say of this wretched sinner, you're good with me. Well, we'll get to that, but that's what God said. You're good with me. The tax collector? The one you and I would never be like? And now look at the rest of it. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house, justified this next word, scandalous, shocking, appalling, overwhelming. Rather than the other The religiously serious man who did not do all these bad things and did do these good things was not accepted by God. He was declared not good enough. Whoa. The crowd would have just said, whoa. Whoa. Four, and here's Jesus' point. Take it seriously, folks. It's how we get in the kingdom. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. This is, uh, I think this is one of the most important passages in this gospel. Jesus has just given a direct challenge, not just to the Judaism of his day, but I think to every variety of religion on the planet. He has given a direct, a direct warning to everybody who's like, I'm a good person. look at what he said. The, The religions of the world, even like the secular, spiritual, but not religious, good person, say, I'm acceptable. I've met the standard, whatever the standard is. I've met it in myself. I'm good. I've done it. I've done it. I can do it. And Jesus says to all of them, if you trust in yourself that you meet the standard, you haven't met the standard. You're not acceptable. Jesus says... That those who are acceptable to God are not the ones who assert that they are good, but the ones who know that they are evil. That's why we call this book The Upside-Down Kingdom. You have to know you're evil and therefore look to God for mercy. There's two kinds of religion in the world, isn't there? And only one is effective. One kind says, you can do it. God will help you out and give you a boost. The other kind says, you have no hope to do it. But God will do it all if you look to him for mercy. Wow. Wow. So the parable shows, Jesus gives us the problem. We tend to look to ourselves for righteousness and treat others with contempt. Then the parable kind of exposes the heart. It's not the externally good person who looks to his, himself that's fit for the kingdom. The only way to be justified is to be desperately honest with yourself and admit that you're evil and you need someone else to come in for you and justify you and make you right. God has to make you right with God. Look at the practical example now. You know, I I rarely hear these two sections go together, but I think they absolutely go together. We're going to see this little story about Jesus and the people bringing their kids, uh, and the disciples and people bringing their kids to Jesus. Um, Think with me about how these two things fit. Look at verse 15. Now they were even bringing infants to him that he might touch them. Okay, Infants is this category from people zero to three-ish. Okay, Zero to three-ish, zero to four-ish. People are bringing infants to Jesus. Now I've I've got one of, I've got one of those. He's almost phasing out. But uh, I, well I would love to take Zeke to Jesus. <laughs> wouldn't you? Anybody who's ever had one, what don't you want to take your kid to Jesus? And uh and, but wouldn't you also be like? I don't know. Does he have time for this? Right? Because, you know he's Jesus. He's busy. Save the world. They were bringing infants to Jesus that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, oh, pay attention, folks. The disciples saw it. What was their response? Hey, get you and your kids away from Jesus. He's busy. Go, give them away. Commentators say that infants of the day possess little, if any, intrinsic value as human beings. Commentators say there were widespread practices of infanticide and child abandonment, at least within the culture of the Roman Empire. Maybe we can relate a little bit. Who are the disciples? Well, let's do it like this. How are the disciples treating the infants? With contempt. That's interesting. Because in the parable, who is it that is self-righteous and treats people with contempt? A Pharisee, but in the practical real life moment, who is it that's treating others with contempt? It's his disciples. Because they're so slow to realize how dependent on mercy they really are. That's why Jesus rest- responds very uh, strongly. Uh, in Luke, it says but that Jesus called to them, and so it's the idea of a summons. I don't know, I, I think it's like this. I'm like, you know, I'm like, my kids only argue like once a year or something, just so that you know. But on the rare occasions that they do that, I might summon them and be like, get over here, right? Can I get an amen? I don't know. Second row over here is looking at me. <laughs> you said you wouldn't talk about us, Dad. <laughs> I just broke it. He summons them to himself. Jesus summons his disciples, get over here. We need to talk. In Mark, it's very strong. Look at what it says in Mark, Mark 10, 13. It's a parallel account. They were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was, what's that next word? Indignant. He's angry. He's very angry that the disciples won't let children bring their infants to him. And so Jesus has a strong point to make. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. So does he want them close or not? He emphatically wants them close. And he says, for to such belong the kingdom of God. And that that phrase is important. He's not just saying to these little infants right here on this hillside. He's saying to all infants like this, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. Mark 10, again, is even stronger. Mark 10, 16. He took them in his arms, and then what? Blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now, my theology on Jesus is so big that if Jesus blesses you, okay, that's bigger than me saying, oh, God bless you, when you sneeze. Okay? If Jesus blesses you, something happens. He has received them. They're in his kingdom. The words can't mean anything else. I want you to think with me about the mindset of Jesus and the disciples. Think with me about the mindset. The disciples are thinking, come on, you know what they're thinking. The families are bringing these little kids to Jesus. Come on, he's the Messiah. The families are bringing these little kids to Jesus. What are they thinking? This is not important enough. What else are they thinking? This is not urgent enough to be on the list. What else are they thinking who are these kids what have they done for the kingdom what can they do for the kingdom what do they even believe they don't have their theology straight <laughs> they do not <have> frontal lobes <laughs> i just got mine a couple years ago so i feel for them they're unable to do righteous deeds they can't choose faith and repentance plus if you just peek down to the heading of the next section who's waiting in the wings Verse 18, a rich ruler. Now that's the important person. That's the one we want Jesus to relate with. And the deep irony of this upside-down kingdom is the rich ruler will be leaving, hanging his head, and the infants are the ones he's holding and blessing. But the ruler can do things, and he's, he's famous, and he's rich, and, and these kids, they just... There's nothing. And guess what? That's the entire point. That's the entire point. The deci- are the disciples shocked that Jesus will hang out with them anymore? You think they woke up going, man, I just can't believe I get to stand here. Especially, was that their mindset when they're like, hey, get your, get your scrawny kids away? No, they've taken for granted that they can hang out with Jesus. But these kids can't come close. Why? They haven't met the law of doing, performing, but the disciples have. And so Jesus wants to say to them, you think you deserve to be with me? And they don't, because I guess for them to be with me, it's pure, utter, nothing but grace. And for you to be with me, well, you've done some stuff. Think again. Think again. Look at what he says. To such belongs the kingdom of God. And now this punchy verse 17. Truly I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does that mean to receive it like a child? What did these children do to deserve to be in Jesus' kingdom and have Jesus' love and have Jesus' presence and have his blessing? What did they do? What could they do? That's the point of this whole illustration. What did they do, folks? Nothing. Nothing. And we need to learn from them. Why does Jesus receive you into his kingdom? Because of all your accomplishments, right? It's especially because all the way you're not like other people. That's not why. To receive the kingdom like a child is a bold dependence on undeserved mercy. That's how I'd put it. It's a bold dependence on undeserved mercy. We're talking about that category of infants, zero to three, zero to four. I think of my little Zeke, right? He never fathoms whether or not he deserves my love. (laughs) What's he just depend on every time, every day? Love me, (laughs) right? He just lives on mercy, and he never thinks twice about it. But he never banks on achievement. And so Jesus says, like that. Because the people who know they need grace and have nothing to offer but sin, those are the people Jesus receives. That's the practical application, isn't it? If you received grace and mercy, Jesus is saying to his disciples. You'll offer it to others. If you truly know what I'm doing for you, Jesus saying to his disciples, you'd be welcoming the infants too. If you truly got that you didn't deserve any of this by your works or your goodness or your accomplishment, if you truly knew that you had nothing like the tax collector in my story, you'd be welcoming anybody because you realize it has nothing to do with what you've earned or achieved. Fascinating. All right, what have we seen so far? There's a problem. We tend to trust in ourselves for righteousness. It leads to treating others with contempt. Then Jesus tells us this parable. It shows us our hearts. Those who trust in themselves for righteousness, no matter how externally religious they are, if you, Jesus will let you trust in what you want for your righteousness. If you trust in yourself, it's not enough. It will be rejected, not righteous. But if you look to God and his mercy, like that tax collector who says, I have nothing but what you can do for me, Jesus will say to you, you're justified. You're right with God. And so the more you get that, the more you'll be able to fight the sense of self-righteousness and not treat others with contempt, the more you'll show others mercy you've been given. So let's take it personally, and we we have to ask this question, right? Where do you find your sense of righteousness? What do you look to? To be right with God, what what are you banking on? I hope you've heard a warning from this passage and none of you are going like, well, I'm not like that person. I hope none of you are looking at, well, I serve more than those people do. I hope none of you are thinking, well, it's those people. Why are those people in your prayer conversation about your righteousness? It's you and God. And when you have that clarity of sight, God, am I right with you? I hope what comes out of your heart next is, Have mercy on me, oh God. I'm a sinner. I won't, I can't boast in my own righteousness. But let's answer that question. I know many of you know the answer, but let's enjoy the answer again. How can God, the holy, perfect God, say to somebody like a wicked, evil tax collector, You're good with me. How can he do that? The logic of this passage is screaming for an answer to that question because everybody's thinking they're terrible. We know they're terrible. According to our Bible, they're terrible. He's terrible. He knows he's terrible. We know he's terrible. You know he's terrible. How can you say about the person who is terrible, and we know they're terrible, and the Bible says they're terrible, that they're fine? Either God has lost his sense of righteousness and just doesn't care anymore, or there's something else. And I think Jesus chose that word when that tax collector said, propitiate for me, appease for me. I think that word was very intentional. Look at this passage from Romans three, the famous passage on this idea. And I will resist preaching a second sermon entirely. <laughs> Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, next phrase, apart from the law. So we were thinking, right, if I kept the law, I'd be righteous. I could find the righteousness in and of myself. But Paul says, no, the righteousness has come. It's manifested. You could have it. But it's apart from the law. Shocking. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. Read the law and prophets and you'll see the law itself will tell you the law is not enough. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For who? All who believe. Tax collectors? Pharisees? You? For there is no distinction. Verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, here's your righteousness standard okay we're running there's a cliff you got to jump here's the glory of god out here and some of you are so awesome and you jump like 12 whole feet some of you are really awesome got like 15 and then there's me i got like i tripped at the end i got like two but how many of us made it there well there's one jesus but everybody else all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and are justified, declared to be right with God, even though you are not in and yourself righteous. Justified by his, what? His grace. Undeserved love. The idea of his love for that infant who couldn't do anything. His love for you. Totally undeserved. I know, stop. You still have some categories where you think you deserve it. Just a little, right? It's hard to, it's hard to fight off. It's by his grace as a Gift, and I think if you say by his grace, you wouldn't have to say as a gift, because in grace there is the gift, but he says it anyway. What's he trying to emphasize here? By his grace as a gift. What do you do with it? How much did you pay for a gift? What did you do to earn the gift? That's the whole idea. It's a gift. It's free. Through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, verse 25, whom God put forward, here's a hard word to say with braces, As a propitiation. You know, some Christians say, hey, get rid of the big hard words that people don't understand. We say, no thanks, we're going to keep them. Let's just explain it. Propitiation should be a sweet word to you. That tax collector in the temple, propitiate for me. What's it mean? You have to do something to appease your own need for justice. Because I can't. You have to find a way to give me this righteousness that I need because I don't have it. And then Paul taking you right there. It's the cross. It's the propitiation by his blood. Just real quick, did God forget his sense of righteousness when he forgave tax collectors? No, justice was still poured out, but poured out on another. Who has taken the wrath of God? for your sins, if you will trust Jesus, Jesus himself. So is God still just to call you righteous? He is, because Jesus has willingly made a trade. Second Corinthians 5.21, I don't have a slide for this, but God made him who had no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That tax collector, it's a parable, but everybody like him goes home righteous through faith in God's mercy. And it's not a joke by God. It's not, it's not a fairy tale. It's an actual, ontological reality of perfect righteousness. You have the standing that Jesus earned. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, which means in ourselves today, even though we're, uh, hopefully, we're becoming more righteous, right? But we're squirming, we're trying, we're fighting, we're wrestling. We know we're not there yet. We're not, we're not there. But in God's sight, something has been stamped upon us, covered, uh, wrapped around us, has defined us. And what does God say to you in his courtroom? Innocent, righteous, because you wear free gift of the righteousness of Christ if you trust that this morning you go down to your house justified and what's amazing is the more you let that percolate your heart guess what you'll be willing to show more and more people whom you'd never be like mercy of course it doesn't you know that doesn't mean you always agree with them doesn't mean doesn't mean there's all sorts of relational aspects but it means that no matter what should we ever treat anyone with contempt the idea of self righteousness that i'm better than you because of whatever if you belong to jesus that whole mindset has disappeared for you it must disappear for you who are you better than on your own righteousness let it land no one it's not to say god doesn't love your obedience that you do you know, through faith by the power of spirit. It's not to say there's not still categories for what it means to live a righteous life. We saw that in our text last week. There, There's categories for a righteous life. We saw it in David's prayer today in Psalm 17. In that situation, he was righteous. Those are valid ways to think about the category of righteousness in the life of righteousness. But when it comes to being made right with God, dare you hope on anything in yourself? Nothing. What do you hope in, church? Jesus Back to our critic How would Jesus respond to our critic? Let's just look at what he said again Christianity teaches that those who accept Jesus as their personal Savior are good. Can we stop there? I? Think that's the first problem Did Jesus just teach you that you were good in this passage? (laughs) That's where we all want to raise our hands where in the Bible does it teach you that you and yourself are good? And that's the whole problem. So I want to press on this just for one more minute. Church, don't even boast in your faith. You hear what I'm saying? Some, some kind of versions of Christianity, they think faith is something you do on your own. Let me just tell you, right, there's person A and person B, and person A chose to put their faith in Christ, and person B didn't. And if that was all you, guess what you just did? You kept the law. And guess what they didn't do? They didn't keep it. And now you can treat them with what? Contempt. You start to read the New Testament. Come on, where'd you get that faith? Is it because you're sober? Such a moral flower deep in your soul. Is your heart deceitful and wicked? Is is your faith even a gift? Your faith is a gift. Can you even boast about your faith? No. The more we get God's mercy to us, how are we going to be able to treat others? Well, not with contempt. So I'd love to talk to this guy, he's a secularist, so I'd like to know whatever standard he's using to judge the faulty standards of Christianity. You know, isn't that curious? We can't do that. But the one thing he's missing is, hey Christians, let's get this right so the world can see it. We're not righteous in and of ourselves. We are changed through the righteousness of another. So let's show people the mercy we've been given, amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. What a gift. I pray that each one of us would have new abilities to enjoy that, believe that, celebrate that. And Lord, show us too, show us as well, where we tend to show contempt. What kind of people get our contempt? What kind of law we cling to that we've kept and we look to others for not keeping? Show us that, Lord, and help us apply The reality of your mercy, that just like those infants, we are saved by grace. Um, That our hearts would say, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Lord, we'd celebrate then the perfect righteousness we have in Christ as a gift through faith. And that your wonderful mercy to us would not just give us joy and peace and and security, but that we'd be more and more willing and wise in uh, offering it to others. We pray this for your glory, and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.